0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. Has the world moved on from the idea of church, whatever that means? Is church open to interpretation? And do we need church to follow Jesus? During a 2018 interview, nearly two decades after the release of his debut novel, Fight Club, author Chuck Palahniuk was asked why he thought the book continued to resonate with readers the way that it did. And he said this. There's so many different
1: aspects to it. And one is just my classic thing is that there are so few social model novels or stories for men, for for women. There are, a, you know, every season. There's a new Joy Luck Club, a new How to Make an American Quilt, a new Traveling Sisterhood of the Yaha Pants, <laughs> whatever. Just all these different models in which women can come together and talk about their lives. And if you're a man, you've got either Fight Club or you have the Dead Poet Society. And that is really it. So we don't have a lot of narratives that, that depict to men a role or a kind of script of, uh, in, a, uh, in which to come together and talk about their, their... And also the idea of Joseph Campbell's idea that there needs to be a secondary father in men's lives, that you're born, if you're lucky, with a biological father that you do not choose, and that is the, the nurturing, loving father. You have to choose a new father, and that, that father by choice typically is a, a minister or a teacher or a drill sergeant or a coach one of those fathers, and you kind of put yourself in apprenticeship to the secondary father. And you have to sort of consign your life to the secondary father and agree to learn what they're going to teach you, Uh, just like in Karate Kid. Mm. And that is getting harder and harder and harder to find. And, And beyond just that, you know, it's also the whole idea of apprenticeship. You know, whether you're apprenticing yourself to a fighting coach or to a metallurgist or to a welder or to a bricklayer or to a mason, you are apprenticing yourself to somebody that you're gonna do all this grunt work for. But in exchange, you're gonna you're gonna learn a kind of really master skill at something. Mm. And so it's a way of mastering yourself as you master this other thing. But it is that existentialistic moment where you you realize that you have to sacrifice your youth for something. You're not going to live forever. Well, you realize you have to become a being living towards death. You're not going to live forever, and you've got to give your life to something. The idea
0: of togetherness, a place where people of a shared way of life can come together and figure things out. The way of apprenticeship, or as Chuck put it, giving your life away to something. Now, eventually, uh, Fight Club came under popular and kind of predictable critiques of toxic masculinity and white male rage for its depiction of the aimless, angry, middle-aged, middle-class man who's duped and disappointed by things like materialism and careerism and celebrity culture and, and the empty promises of the American dream, and they act out with violent mayhem. In the late 90s, uh, Fight Club, especially its 1999 film adaptation directed by David Fincher, was reviled by the the culture war moral police as sort of violent, grotesque, and depraved. And then today, Fight Club is reviled by the culture war moral police on the other side of the aisle as kind of the sad totem for privileged white male misogynists and incels. But whatever you think or don't think about Fight Club, I think that its author, Mr. Polinok, is probably on to something when he speculates about the book and the movie's staying power. And it's really simple. It's the idea that when a group of people with a shared problem and purpose come together, they can learn from one another in service to a cause, apprenticing a master, and in that process, they master themselves in the name of something bigger than themselves. An idea like that doesn't only speak to men, it speaks to the human soul, but it also kind of scares us because we want it, but we don't want it. And few are willing to make the sacrifices necessary to achieve mastery in apprenticeship. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Tonight, is the third chapter of our annual vision series. Every fall, we as a church, we set aside time to gather up, remind ourselves and one another what our particular church is up to, why we're here, who we are, and God willing who we hope to be in the days, weeks, and months ahead. This year, reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Every generation feels as if the world is descending into madness, into social and moral disrepair. The doomsday clock, we figure, is tick, tick, ticking. And my God, how did it get this bad? And amidst the storm of competing cultural narratives desperate to strangle one another to death, up the middle, between the right and the left, aisles of political mass hysteria, through every new sense of moral collapse and dystopian nightmare, on trudges the disciple of Jesus or the Christian. Now, of course, Christianity isn't always depicted as a rebel movement, more like a spiritual position to which one might ascribe if asked Or it can be sort of a feel-good, self-help philosophy watered down by the open-to-interpretation guiding compass of love, whatever that means to you. But then, year after year, decade after decade, the ongoing brokenness of the world takes new shapes and feels, to those of us experiencing it at the time anyway, as if this is really it. And all of us experience a strange peripheral chaos in which we're made to ask serious questions about what we believe and how we should live as a result or lumber forward in willful denial and just hope for the best. The punchline of the Saturday Night Live cold open last week was, and I quote, well, it was a nice country while it lasted. And uh, listen, I'm still obviously very, very young, uh, you can tell just by looking at me, as, as sprightly as ever. But I am still old enough to remember the grown-ups around me saying that exact same thing in the 80s and 90s. And maybe you're saying, well, sure, but they had no idea how bad things would get. But I'm willing to bet that the same basic sentiment was ever present in the 40s, when, if you don't remember, a madman was actively attempting to take over the world and exterminate an entire group of people. Active shooter drills that our kids run now in their schools uh, in 2022 are a horrifying reminder of where we're at as a country. But I'm betting that Cold War nuclear attack drills evoked a similar dystopian dread decades ago. We know for sure that Caesar Nero was burning Christians alive to light his garden at night. The early disciples of Jesus crossed the Roman Empire. Again, we know we're saying to one another, this has to be the end times, right? It's not that the world isn't actually bad. It is. It is. And it's not that the world can't get any worse. It can. It just sort of oscillates. Sometimes it only feels terrifying to certain people based on their sort of uh, preferences and moral disposition. And sometimes it seems to everyone as if it's really coming apart. And sometimes with a very narrow view of the entirety of a broken world. Elsewhere in the world, for instance, there is war and violent political upheaval, revolution, genocide, slave labor. But to us... The wrong politician on TV feels like the apocalypse. But even if the world itself doesn't seem to you a frightful, anxious place, I'll be honest, I don't read or watch the news, and I'm often blissfully ignorant to the world's panic and hysteria. And even so, the world's brokenness can and will bleed through somehow. Something can and will pop the tidy comforts of my insular world, and I will be made to wrestle with who I am and who we are and why we're here and where all of this is headed late in the story of the scriptures, we meet an interesting character called Saul, who later takes on the name Paul. Now, this guy had been persecuting and killing members of this burgeoning new movement then called The Way, which was made up of disciples of an executed criminal called Yeshua or Jesus of Nazareth. But these disciples of Jesus, students of his, some of whom had never even met the guy, were absolutely convinced that their teacher, who was, again, an executed criminal, had come back to life. A guy who told everyone he would die and come back to life and then did it, they figured, is probably a guy worth listening to. And it makes sense. Uh, You have a guy who's going around saying, listen, they're going to kill me, but then God is going to bring me back to life and validate everything that I've said and done. And so you'll know the stuff that I say is true. Then he dies. He comes back to life. People figure, huh, the story checks out. We might as well follow this guy around some more. And these were people who would have known, by the way, if Jesus did not come back to life. They could just check the tomb or ask the people who were right there. It was right, it was right there. Not here physically, but it was nearby. And they stood to gain absolutely nothing aside from you know, persecution, imprisonment, and death by spreading a rumor that they knew was untrue. So historians kind of have this real pickle on their hands. Why were first century Jews, who would, would have never believed that the creator god Yahweh had become incarnated in a human being, um, did? And then now they're suddenly willing to die for an idea that seemed to benefit them in no way with a story that seems so painfully suspect. You know, lots of reasons. The testimony of women, for example, wasn't considered credible in the first century. And yet women are depicted as the heroes of the New Testament, the only ones not to completely abandon Jesus and the first ones to discover that he was actually risen back to life. Why not change that detail and a hundred like it if you're making the story up or, for another example, why disciples depict yourselves as bumbling failures if your story is a complete invention. Something incredible had to have happened to change everything. You can figure that one out for yourself. Either way, Paul, this guy at the time named Saul, he wasn't into it. In fact, he belonged to the very group of religious leaders that got this Jesus guy arrested and killed. So now he's hard at work trying to stop this annoying movement from growing any further. But then he, Paul, has this incredible encounter with Jesus against all laws. Even Paul, the guy out to kill and imprison Christians, becomes a Christian himself. Again, you figure that one out. His whole life changes. Paul travels around the ancient Mediterranean talking about Jesus, planting churches in the name of Jesus, It was a whole thing. He gets arrested several times along the way, and during one stretch in jail, Paul sends a letter to one of his young protégés called Timothy, because Paul believes that he, like Jesus and like the other apostles, is nearing the time of his own execution. The letter that he sends Timothy is full of specifics, names and details and churches anchored in times and places long since past. But interestingly, the chaos Encircling the churches of the first century sounds strangely familiar, which brings us to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of the inspired and authoritative scriptures? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, "...in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge." Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For listen, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. What are we doing right now? All of this. Church. Church. In theology, we call the study of church uh, ecclesiology. And so much of your ecclesiology, what you believe about church, depends on at least three major factors. First, the good stuff that you've experienced. Secondly, the bad stuff you've experienced. Uh, My friend Bethany, who's taught many times at Vansity over the years, she tells a story about what it was like being a part of a big church when she was very young, and her mom suddenly up and left, abandoned their family. They didn't see her at all for years and years and years. There were whispers and cruel gossip and victim blaming, what's wrong with your family, your damaged goods, all that stuff. But she also talks about the way that a small group of women Surrounded her and cared for her and walked with her over the years of her adolescence and early adulthood and became for her surrogate mothers when she had none. So she saw the hypocrisy and the corruption absolutely, but she also saw the beauty of the family of God. And that is one reason why to this day she believes in the church. And that's why she became a pastor herself. But it's not just personal experience that informs our ecclesiology, what we believe about church. What you believe about church is informed by what you believe about following Jesus. If following Jesus is deeply personal and often private sort of spiritual or ethical position that you take, then whatever church is, it must be open to interpretation. So if you want to do the sanctuary on Sunday thing, the pews and the songs and the sermons and the small groups, well, that's, that's one way to go about it. But, you know, if I hang out at a bar with my friends from time to time and talk a little spirituality over a pint, well, that's church too. Or volunteering at the mission is church, a hike is church, the movie theater is church. That's as close as it gets for me personally. In fact, some argue maybe the hike and the pub are better. Churches. After all, haven't we seen enough lousiness, weeping from the open wound of organized church structures and pastors to last us all a lifetime? Isn't it time that we move on? What is church, really? For some, church is a social contract. Uh, This sort of country club Christianity is, is more prevalent throughout the South and more culturally conservative demographics, not usually ours. And in this view, you don't show up to church for things like community and spiritual formation per se. Maybe you don't mind those things, but there's not a lot of change or growth to speak of. The church is just what you do, right? It's what we've always done. And really, it's easy to pick on this view. It's not all bad. God, I wish more disciples of Jesus maintained the disciplined faithfulness to simply show up week in, week out, regardless of outside circumstances and emotional disposition. The disciplined faithfulness to simply say, no, we go to church. This is what we do. It is non-negotiable. That is one aspect of what it means to belong to the community of God's people. But obviously, it's more than that. For some people, church is an event. It's a social club. In this paradigm, the big show typically reigns supreme. Bells and whistles, amenities, a place to hear good music, and a half-decent TED talk, and hang out with friends, and maybe cameo in the high-budget live stream, if you're lucky. There I am. <laughs> um, you know, our church was uh, actually planted by a much, much bigger church, where I used to work in Portland, a beautiful church with whom we, we we're deeply grateful to share relationship and collaboration to this day. And because they planted us, and they love us, and because my friends still work there, they'll often encourage people from Vancouver who show up to their church looking for community in Portland. Oh, you should try this church that we planted in Vancouver. And you could probably imagine how that goes, heading straight from the multi-million-dollar mega party to Van City. <laughs> uh, most of those visitors quietly sneak to the exit, and they make their way back to the big show. But that's not the church's fault. It's the consumers. the one looking for the big show, the big stage, the cool club. They want that sweet, sweet experience. Not the, the hard work of family per se. It's easier to have a spiritual moment with a big production helping you out. And this understanding of church, the whole thing inevitably becomes a product to be consumed, And that's not to say whatsoever that if the church is big, it's insincere, anything like that. I know lots and lots of very big churches that are wonderfully sincere, beautiful places to find family and experience the love of God. It's the disposition of the person attending the church that I'm critiquing. And where this understanding reigns, the idea that the church is a product to be consumed... Neither the small neighborhood church like ours nor the giant megachurch conglomerate can ever grow in a deep, meaningful sense when the sacred gathering together of the family of God can be objectified into a Yelp review." You just sort of pick the church that you like the best, with the comfiest chairs and the nicest sound system and the coolest, most famous pastor and the band that plays your favorite songs in your favorite style. It's like a buffet. You take the things that you like. You leave the things that you don't. You show up on a Sunday, but not to the community. You show up to the community, but not on a Sunday. In fact, go to multiple churches. Assemble your platter as you go. Don't pitch in because it's a service that's provided for you. If anything bothers you or isn't quite to your liking, if there's ever a conflict or if anyone in leadership or. In your community drops the ball, this is no big deal. You just head to the next location with your anger and resentment intact. This isn't the only game in town, after all. But there are others who take church very seriously. And for some of them, church isn't a social event or a social contract or a product to be consumed. It's a political uprising. It's an ideological competition So on the right, again, and, you know, the South or throughout more conservative areas of the country, it's uh, on the right. It's the struggle, the political struggle to take America back for God, legislate and impose our morality, our worldview. We want to be on top, to be in charge, the most powerful, the loudest, the best. On the left, it's the exact same thing in every way, just a different outfit, the battle for social justice, at least ostensibly, fight the power, a means to do war against social and political corruption, maybe even against other less enlightened churches. Usually all that takes place on social media, the great battlefield of our time. So you leave comments on church social media posts to let them know exactly how they've fallen short in the woke department. And church becomes a beacon for virtue signaling, a place to hang political signs and rainbow banners, a place to meet before the next big march. And in the Bible, there is absolutely a warfare dimension of church. But it's a spiritual battle. In the language of Paul, it's not against flesh and blood at all. It's against the powers of darkness in the spiritual realm or the world, the flesh, and the devil. So when church becomes... An ideological competition, first and foremost, it ultimately becomes arbitrated by the ideological police that run it. Which church virtue signals the loudest on social media? Which church says the right things at the right times and doesn't stand against your particular language rule book? Yes, the way of Jesus absolutely means justice. And this includes fighting racism and sexism and oppression and injustice. But all of those things submitted to King Jesus not evolving cultural sensibilities. So there are aspects of some of these understandings of church that ring true, but I would argue personally that none of them quite catch the point that the church is an alternative society. It is a family with a way of life who walks together as they learn the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice together. When a group of people with a shared problem or purpose come together and they learn from one another in service to a cause, a master, how to master themselves in the name of something bigger than themselves. An idea like that speaks to the human soul, but it also scares us. We want it, but we don't want it. And few are willing to make the sacrifices necessary to achieve mastery and apprenticeship. At City. We go about this in several ways. For anyone, for instance, that approaches someone who's a leader in the church and asks, hey, if I wanted to, how do I get involved in this thing? What does it mean to be a part of your church? Here's the same answer we've been giving for more than six years now. Come to the Sunday gathering. Be in a Van City community. That's our kind of small group that meet, that, that meet throughout the city and elsewhere every week. Serve and give. Commit to being here, not as a social contractor or as a social event, not as a product, not in service to any ideology other than Jesus, but be here on Sunday, faithfully committed. Be in a community, faithfully committed. The invitation for your consideration is to be here. Not here and you know X amount of other churches, not X amount of other churches and here to complement your platter, not only in a community and not at the Sunday gathering, and not only at the Sunday gathering and not in a community. Those are two sides of the same coin, both of them equally church. And then serve the church in whatever way that you can in your season of life, in your stage of apprenticeship with Van City Kids, or making coffee, or playing in the band, or whatever it is that you have to give, and contribute financially. According to the teachings of Jesus, the way you spend your money reveals what's most important to you. In a healthy family, everyone pitches in. So the idea is that you come ready to participate, not to consume, to contribute through worship, and presence, and prayer, and prophecy. That's what it means to really be here. Now, if you're brand new or you're just visiting and you're sort of figuring things out, we want you to know that you are absolutely welcome to be here in that process. No one is going to rush you or pressure you. We would love to have you hanging out with us on Sunday while you journey through what it means for you to follow Jesus. And if and when you're ready to go deeper, that will be the invitation. Come to the Sunday gathering, be in a City community, serve and give as the world around us continues to oscillate in seasons of what make what feels like, you know, madness and mass deconversion, my hope and my prayer for Van City Church is twofold: to build and rebuild faith and to practice that faith as an act of rebellion. Contrary to a certain pop culture caricature Commitment to the ancient, historic, apostolic, orthodox way of Jesus is actually the opposite of a dim-witted, unthinking, walled-off, primitive, religious obligation. The, the life of the disciple... The life of the one is the life of one who meditates on and wrestles with the scriptures, who adjusts and rearranges their theology in that process, who fights for a sharp, open mind to think well and think critically and to direct their life as a result. The life of the disciple is the life of one who is willing to open their entire lives in vulnerability and accountability to others on that same journey of discipleship, having complicated conversations and doing difficult work on our personalities and our wirings and our past and why we are the way we are and how we will become the people that God has called us to be. Committed and committing to a family for the long haul to be present and be accountable when you feel like it and when you don't. That is much more difficult and much more rewarding than the watered-down sort of church is a hype, church is a pub mentality, which ultimately, I think, bows to mood and preference. This kind of work of following Jesus well is anything but emotionally lazy or closed-minded or intellectually stagnant. We do not deconstruct. We transform and mature faith in the journey of spiritual formation, becoming like Jesus. And we are not in any way afraid of questions and problems and doubt and wrestling because God isn't either. He welcomes all those things. God is not insecure. He made us. He gets that this is often difficult and confusing and that we are in process. And because he knows this, he gave us one another. As a family, we are agreeing to wrestle through this as a family, and we are agreeing to do it together. We need one another to follow Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus all by yourself. We need disciples full of faith to lend us theirs when we're in seasons of drought. And we need disciples full of wisdom to speak truth to the lies that we are often tempted to believe about ourselves and the world around us. We need disciples who have been walking the road for years, decades longer than us, in our midst to remind us that faithfulness is real. It's not a pipe dream. Look, they're doing it. They're still doing this. I'm doing this with other people. And we need the spirit of Jesus speaking through our brothers and sisters' words of prophetic encouragement in our lives week in, week out. Not just me on my couch in the darkness of morning, my own personal quiet time, that's beautiful, it's necessary, I do that every morning, but also my life open in prayer before other people to say, listen, I think the Spirit of God might be saying this for you tonight. All of that becomes faithfulness as an act of rebellion against the cultural narratives we are often so tempted to believe. Rebellion against the corruption and commodification of church, against the cynical and individualistic reinterpretation of church, against the deconstructionist tearing down of the church. That is faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Now, we're almost done. Stay with me for just a few more minutes. I realize that... For many of us, it sometimes feels as if bailing out on church and discipleship to Jesus is the narrative amongst a certain demographic kind of raised in Christianity, in a Christianity that hurt them. For some of us, it can often feel like the Christian movement is sort of breaking down, that everyone is leaving, and that this is it. But we have to remind ourselves and one another that this movement is much bigger than a tiny fragment of one group of people in one place at one time. Professor A.J. Swoboda has an excellent book called After Doubt that we have for sale at cost on our book table, along with other recommended reads from this series, and in it, Swoboda recognizes the irony of the fact that, statistically, the quintessential deconstructionist inevitably falls victim to the very thing they most violently critique. He says this, If I, a white Christian male, were to take elements of someone else's culture and use them for my own purposes, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible and change them to fit my purposes with no regard for the intent with which they were written, they call me enlightened and involved. How could this be? He goes on to say, for every millennial, affluent, white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people with less privilege in this world who are finding in the Bible the greatest message one could ever imagine. And... That's not just inspirational fluff. There are actual quantifiable numbers to back this up. According to one researcher I consulted this week, 67% of the world's Christians live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania. And the largest share of them live in Africa. The majority of them are women. And the median age of Christians in sub-Saharan Africa is just 19. Now, here's why this matters. Maybe it seems as if the historic Christian movement is being deconstructed to death by jaded American ex-evangelicals, but it simply isn't true. Maybe it seems as if Christianity has been run into the ground by American scandal and marred beyond repair by televangelists and politicians, but it hasn't, because the average Christian is not represented by some cynical white Californian post-Christian podcaster dude. The average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria. The same Christian movement from 2,000 years ago is thriving all over the world where, though always complicated, always imperfect, it remains untouched by the cynicism and corruption that you and I take for granted. And the hilarious irony is that a majority white affluent Western demographic Demographic has committed to such a vocal critique of a movement founded by and primarily sustained by non white people who have had no affluence or privilege to speak of in their lives. We belong to something bigger than us bigger than this room, bigger than this group, something ancient and beautiful and broken and imperfect though it may be. And we need to come back to this space week in and week out and look around a room full of broken, imperfect people with their hands outstretched to God, singing and praying and listening and learning so that we can remember, I'm not alone in this. I belong to a family, imperfect though it may be. Ours is a way of life. It is a kingdom that grows the world over for thousands of years. And I will walk this road with my brothers and sisters. When a group of people with a shared problem and purpose come together, they can learn with one another in service to a cause and a master. And in the process, learn how to master themselves and give their lives over to something bigger than themselves. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to do that. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.